Welcome to Friends and Neighbors, a Wagner Brothers podcast in which we talk with real people about depth and simplicity in an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, New York Times bestselling author, Tim Madigan. When Christopher and I began imagining our PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me, remembrances of Fred Rogers were not yet a cottage industry. It was surprising then, in the earliest days of my research, to discover Tim Madigan's just-published memoir, I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. More surprising still, Tim and my stories shared much in common. We both met Fred unexpectedly and were quickly disarmed by his authenticity and presence. In both cases, he quickly ferreted out our respective sadnesses and somehow empowered, inspired, and otherwise catalyzed us to make sense of them. It was more surprising still to learn that Tim would be reading from his new book, just a few hundred steps from Christopher's New York City apartment. We thought it was a terrific coincidence. And so, one hot August night in 2006, we met Tim. We've been friends ever since. Tim is Midwestern. He spent 30 years as a highly decorated reporter and columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram before turning towards nonfiction. I've long said that Tim is the emotional heart of Mr. Rogers and me. He wears his on his sleeve. His authenticity is legit. His sadness is palpable. And in being vulnerable, Tim gives all of us permission to do the same. It's a role he's played in my life ever since, as we've shared 15 years of triumph and tribulation. This week, more than two decades after its original publication, Tim's first book, The Burning, The Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, entered the New York Times bestseller list at number four, which seemed like a pretty good time to slow down, get present, and go deep with Tim on who loved him into being and how, in Mr. Rogers' orbit, coincidences are regular occurrences and much, much more. Well... I was the oldest of seven kids. Uh, grew up in a little town in northern Minnesota. Uh, my dad owned a lumberyard. My mom was a nurse. Obviously, seven kids in a small house was pretty chaotic. I was an athlete, and uh, there were five boys and two girls. But the thing that was different about me is that I was always reading and reading things that I think my parents thought were not terribly age-appropriate. Like I remember reading a book on astrology by Gene Dixon, and they thought I was going over into the dark side. But I loved reading novels, and, and I was always very attentive to the news on television. They thought it was weird that a 10-year-old could be so religious to Walter Cronkite. I started working for the student paper in my high school, and then I started working for the local paper, and then in college, I worked for the student paper. And basically, I found that the only way to be a writer and actually get paid for it is to be a journalist. And I never was really interested in journalism per se. It was just I wanted to tell stories. And I was encouraged by a, a, a boss relatively early on, probably in the early 1990s, to start writing about my own life. And that was transformative. And I, I remember saying to her, well, okay, I'll do it, but you'd have to promise never to let me make a fool out of myself. And I'm not sure she held her into the bargain, but I started doing it anyway. And w one of the things that really kind of, struck me was kind of eye-opening was is that the more vulnerable I got in terms of writing about my own life, the more the reaction there was mm. from the readers, especially when I started writing about my struggles, depression. I remember the first time I mentioned my own depression in print, I got like 500 emails from people who said, 
something to, along the lines of, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. And I realized that one of the responsibilities of a writer is to try to connect the people who read their work with the world, with a larger world and a larger community. Talk to me a little bit about your, your college experience. Is there a professor or a class, something that really sort of catalyzed you or you were like, now nah, this is why I'm here? One in particular was this poet named Howie Good, who taught in the journalism department at the University of North Dakota. And he was from the East Coast. He was kind of a fish out of water and he didn't last long in North Dakota. He was a wonderful writer himself and a wonderful poet. And he saw something in me that led me to believe that maybe this could actually happen, that maybe I had a, I had a talent for this. Do you remember your first assignment? Your first like, oh gosh, this is a real newspaper assignment? You know, it's no secret, I guess. I've I struggled with, shall we say, low self-esteem and depression for a lot of years. And I, and I saw the writing as an antidote to that, that there was something that was going to fix me. It didn't, of course, it couldn't, but that's how I saw it. And that is a very hard way to make a living because there's this existential pressure that, you know, if you're basing your life on what you do, that if you fail, you know, whatever. In 1986, I got a call from my editor saying, Challenger just exploded. We need you to go to Houston to Mission Control to join the coverage. Yeah. And I was 28 years old, still kind of a cub reporter. And I went from feeling relatively peaceful to absolutely terrified in the moment of the, those few minutes of, of the conversation. And so I jumped in my car and I got to Mission Control late in the afternoon and just desperate to find a story. Every time you turn around, you're running into someone from the New York Times or CBS News. I have no business here. I'm totally out of my deal. And obviously, NASA wasn't saying anything at the time. So I heard that there was astronauts lived in a neighborhood not too far away. So I just, like two hours before my deadline, I went to this neighborhood, started knocking on doors. Most of them didn't answer. But finally, I knocked on the store and this guy comes to the door. I'll never forget it. He's holding a Heineken. And I said, uh, you, any astronauts live around here? And he says, well, I'm an astronaut. His name was Fred Gregory. He had flown on the very same Challenger in the previous mission, wow. had, had been the pilot. Oh my and God. that day, he was in charge of capsule communications with the Challenger. So he's talking to these people at the moment they died. He invited me into his house and we were sat down in his living room. And I remember Rambo was on the TV, the little details, right? I remember the only thing I felt was not achievement, but this massive sense of relief. Mm -hmm. I didn't screw it up. And then the next day that just that fear was back. Mm -hmm. And that's how I lived. That's how I lived for years and years. The thing about it is I was banking on the job to quiet the fires in my soul. And in the mid 1990s, I uh, started winning a bunch of awards, which I'd always thought was going to be the trick. And for two weeks, everything was great. And then I would go down even deeper dark, yeah. to a deeper, darker place than before. So it was about that time I met Fred Rogers. I started to ask myself, well, if this isn't going to do it, if this isn't going to be my solution to my pain, why am I doing this? Gradually, I started to realize that to basically try to do it to serve and contribute rather than to get something out of it. It reminds me also of something a, a therapist once suggested to me. I have social anxiety, which is hilarious because like I go into rooms with 200 people I don't know and stand up in front of them and talk. I'm talking cocktail party social anxiety, right? And he's like, try this, focus entirely on are they comfortable, not worrying about are you comfortable. Tim, you're talking about like outward versus inward, right? Like think about what you're giving, not what you're getting. 
that's a great turn of that is uh, because I guess when you have social anxiety, you're worried that you're not going to get, you're, you're going to say something, you know, but if you can turn the tables and just be focused on how I can contribute to something for free and for fun, you know, it takes a lot of the pressure off. I noticed and loved that you used that language, seeking and healing in your bio. Healing to me goes back to the whole Fred Rogers notion that, you know, what we have most in common are our wounds, our anger, our sadness, our self-doubt, our feeling of not being good enough. Fred says that that which is most personal is most universal, or he paraphrased Henry not saying it. And then the other thing is there's no such thing as a right or a wrong feeling. They just are. One of the biggest afflictions known to man, in my opinion, is we all have this kind of inner messiness, but we make it so much worse on ourselves needlessly because we layer, layer on a, shame, a, a layer of shame on that, thinking that we're the only ones who feel that way. So we feel bad about feeling bad. What I've stopped doing is I stopped feeling bad about feeling bad. And so my prayer is, dear God, I'm suffering. End of story, period. And I sit with those, that pain. I don't try to run from it. Basically, the practice is to let the demons catch up. And a lot of times, it's very painful and very messy. Mm-hmm. But over time, that dissipates. And it, and it does take time. I've learned how to be a much better friend to myself. Mm. I've stopped judging my pain. I think one of the, one of the hardest things to do it as a human being is to be a good friend to yourself. And I've learned, I've learned how to do that more and more. That when I'm in a bad place, rather than saying, you suck, you know, you're weak, you know, I say, you know what, Tim, you're really suffering today. And say it with all the compassion I can muster, the same kind of compassion that hopefully I would ease with a friend. And when you can do that, I just think the world changes. What a remarkable person to answer the door. Um, This is just about when you meet Mr. Rogers, when you meet Fred? Uh, By the time I met Fred, I I had recognized that there's something going on here that needs to be addressed in terms of depression. I started to get help for it. I was still kind of a mess when I met him. There's another story I want to tell you from that time, though, that I think is, is awesome. Another big story. I think it was like 1989, uh, where it had to do with the border crisis. Central American refugees were charging across the border, and you know the, the, and the federal government was about ready to change its policy to prevent them from disappearing into the country when they came in to apply for amnesty. Anyway, big national story. I was sent down there to cover it, and I was in just the darkest place. Uh, and again, every time I turned around, I was running into the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or CBS News. And again, I felt, oh boy, this is the time when I'm really going to screw up. Looked up into the sky. I said, basically, God, what do you want from me? This is crazy. Mm. And then finally, drove into town, called a friend. The moment I heard a friendly voice, I just broke down. I basically cried myself out. And his friend says, so what are you doing, Doc? And I told him what the assignment was. He says, this sounds, that sounds pretty interesting to me. He says, here's what you do. You just drive back into town and see what happens. So I drive back into town near, near the immigration headquarters. And there's this woman loading people, cramming people into the back of this rental truck, this rider rental truck. So I introduced myself. I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm taking these Central American refugees to Houston to get them kind of out of harm's way. And so I said, could I ride with you? And she said, of course. So in I go. And so I do all these interviews with these men, women, and children. 
the woman who was doing this was a church worker from Houston and she stopped and went into the supermarket to buy milk and sandwiches stuff for to feed these people. And what I remember most about that is one of the refugees made a sandwich for me and handed it to me. So further down the road, it gets to be very late at night. And by then most people were sleeping and I was basically, my legs were dangling outside of this truck and there's this tap at my shoulder and, uh, this man had pulled his daughter onto his lap so I would have a place to lay down. And early on that day, I looked into this clouds and I asked God, where the hell are you? And, and it turned out that where he was or she was or what it was, I was in the back of a crowded truck full of refugees. Stories like that and have kept me going over the years through some real darkness because when things are the darkest, it seems like something like that happens up to and including in the fall of 1995, when this newspaper assignment led me to our mutual friend, Fred Rogers, and that whole, that whole journey. And the other thing that I think has kept me going, when I was a kid, I remember looking up into the, especially before a storm, and I remember just feeling a sense of awe or lying in my back in dewy grass, looking up into the stars and saying, there's something about what's out there that lives inside of me. And I've always felt like, even though I wasn't able to articulate it at the time, I've always felt like I had a very personal relationship with the loving mystery, as Fred Rogers called it, or the transcendent or God or whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that I've realized looking back over the expanse of 63 years now is how faithful that reality has been to me, even though there's been a tremendous amount of pain that that reality has always been my companion. When you describe darkness and light, I was thinking about, um, you've written lots of books, but you're having a great big moment right now with your New York Times bestselling book about Tulsa, how you reconcile or how you make sense of your experience with Mr. Rogers and this experience, which seems to me so, so dark, just the worst in what we can do to each other as humans versus some of the best. I mean, just how do you hold those two things? They, how do you make sense of their, as, as a body of work, as the same universe of behavior? It's a very good question. And I'm not sure I have a good answer, but I think to me, it's been really an amazing experience to be have my book and to be part of this conversation, be part of this moment in history. I think the most important part is I was born and raised in Northern Minnesota, as I said, no black people, completely oblivious to, to matters of race in this country and, and almost willfully so until the year 2000 when I learned about Tulsa. And when I did, I learned what happened there was completely consistent with what was going on in our nation at the time, which horrified me. But it just changed the way I looked at other people, especially other people different than me. I felt I, I had a much more of an ability to be compassionate and curious. And uh, so I made the connection. Fred Rogers said, it's much easier to love someone when you know their story. When I wrote to him and I confessed to him the, the great pain I felt in 1996, the great pain I felt over the relationship with my father, he obviously was very supportive, compassionate, wise, and all those things towards me. But it wasn't too long afterwards, he said, tell me about your dad. What was his childhood like? You know, knowing that if, if my dad was lacking in some ways as a father, that there had to have been yeah. a story behind it. So I started to ask my dad and what I learned broke my heart. His childhood had been a nightmare and he had given me 10 times more as a father than his father had given him. Gradually, he stopped being this godlike figure of my youth. 
Right. He started to be just another suffering human being like me doing the best he could. And when my dad died 10 years ago, you know, all I felt was the most pure form of sorrow. And with my dad and with Black people, by learning their stories in some magical way, allowed their humanity to be revealed in ways that wasn't possible before. And so my theory is there are millions and millions of white people like myself who, if they only knew the story, would have a very similar experience. You just went, just got back from going down to Tulsa, correct? And right, right. That must have been, just t- talk about that experience, please. I mean, that must have been so moving. I saw some beautiful photos and lots of smiles and it looked. This may come as a shock to you, but I have a hard time describing what, sure. finding, finding the words to describe it. But not only me, but uh, a lot of the descendants of the survivors which were just kind of stumbling into one another mm. throughout those three days and having these amazing conversations and these amazingly healing interactions. And it was just like, there's this vibe going on there, unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And the last thing I did before I left was I stopped by the bookstore to sign some books. And it wasn't a formal book signing, but they had some some copies of The Burning they wanted me to sign. So I was in the back signing them and the manager comes back and says, there's someone who wants to meet you. And it turns out to be a descendant of one of the most tragic figures in the, in the massacre, a doctor by the name of AC Jackson, who is a very prominent physician known from coast to coast who was murdered by the mob on June 1st, 1921. And so this young man comes back and is, and we start talking and just have this wonderful conversation. And we start comparing notes about the amazing things that we've had, have experienced. And he starts telling me about the things, experiences he's had. And, and the comment that stuck with me was, you know, how do you explain this? And he said, the ancestors have been at work. And I think that that's as good an explanation. How can you explain the fact that I go from nervous breakdown to the back of this truck with Central American refugees? in the course of one day. I think that there is a force at work in the universe that comes into play with this. Fred called it the loving mystery at the heart of the universe who, that yearns to be expressed. And, and again, uh, you experience it enough times, you come to expect it. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Thanks for always being there. And thanks for showing me what it might look like. This path you're on is preordained or inevitable. Because your, your spirit, your curiosity, your compassion just would not be contained in conventional ways. I will tell you the moment when I did truly begin to think that something else was happening was when we realized that you were literally reading like 10 doors down, right? I'm just Googling. Who knows anything about Mr. Rogers? Oh, this guy's got a book. Oh, he's on a book tour. Oh, he's at the end of the block next week or whatever. Right, right. right? Every time that sort of thing happens, to your point about beginning to expect it, the older I get, the more I'm like, well, that's right. That's what happens. But right. I still try and honor and cherish and express gratitude. Well, I mean, I try to be grateful because it has some frequency. That is, it is like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, uh, I, I know you got better things to do up there, but thanks for... <laughs> They're crumbs. <laughs> but it really is all crumbs, right? Like, as if you're paying attention, right. the, the crumbs aggregate. And I think right. part of the challenge is like, to your point, but if we don't know each other's stories, we don't stand a chance. And if we keep being busy and distracted by happy meals and television, we don't stand a chance, right? But if we do this with each other every once in a while, so I think the trick is how do you keep scaling interpersonal relationships? 
with every human interaction, especially when there's kindness and meaning exchanged, like we're doing, and which we always do when we talk, uh, the seeds are planted. And we never really get to see how they're going to take root or how they're going to flower. I just think that they do. And Fred Rogers was like the Johnny Appleseed of all time. It was Tim who first introduced us to the quote that hung in Fred's WQED office for nearly 40 years. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Throughout the pandemic, as we all sought to feel that essential invisible, Tim began shooting and sharing quiet, contemplative videos from the edge of Fort Worth's Trinity River. Sunlight dancing on a rapid, wind rustling a thicket of cattail, a blue heron standing sentry. Through this simple daily ritual, Tim modeled his commitment to seeking and healing. He showed us that the essential invisible is always available. He reminds us of the imperative to be present and notice, to slow down and to sit with our own experiences. In his columns, books, and deeds, and in our 15 years of ongoing conversation, Tim reminds us that it's not easy, but it is what matters. Discovering the truth about ourselves, Mr. Rogers once said, is a lifetime's work. But, he concluded, it's well worth the effort. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share Friends and Neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.